Shaolin shadow boxing and a Wu Tang sword style. If what you say is true, the Shaolin and the Wu Tang could be dangerous. Do you think your Wu Tang sword can defeat me? On guard. I'll let you try my Wu Tang style. That nigga won, yeah. Where we go? Look out for the cops, though. Cash fruit. Word up. Super fives over here, baby. Word up. Super fives. Niggas got garbage down the way. Word up. Cash fruit. Everything around me. Cream it. Yeah. Check this old fly shit out. Word up. Cash fruit. Everything around me. Cream it. The money. Dollar dollar bill, y'all. I grew up on the crime side. The New York Times side. Staying alive was no job. At second hands. Moms bounced on old man, so then we moved to Shallon Land. A young youth, you're rocking the gold tooth. Low goose, only way I begin to G York was drug loot. And let's start it like this, son. Rolling with this one and that one, pulling out gats for fun. But it was just a dream for the team who was a fiend. Started smoking wounds at 16. And running up in gates and doing it by high stakes. Making my way on fire skates. No question, I was speed for cracks and weed. The combination made my eyes bleed. No question, I would flow off and try to get the dough off. Sticking up white boys on ballboards. My life got no better. Same damn low sweater. Times is rough and tough like leather. Figured out I went the wrong route. So I got with a sick ass click and went all out. Catching keys from cross seas. Rolling in MPVs every week. We made 40 G's. Yo, nigga, respect my nigga to check notch. You are listening to Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn Podcast. Expand your mind and keep it love. This is episode 162 and I'm your host, Miguel. All of the content that you will hear in this episode are fair use Creative Commons license. Just a little housekeeping before we start the episode. I just uploaded 22 videos onto my IGTV platform, which can be found on my Instagram page named Alpha Male Buddhist. The videos are all long format, about 15 minutes long, and each video has been carefully selected in order to create a repository of higher learning, or better said, a repository of supreme knowledge. Many of the vids are directly from podcast episodes from my show. I just recently discovered, like three or four days ago, the mechanics of actually how to create an IGTV video because there's there's some loose instructions on YouTube, but there's nothing really in concrete step-by-step of how it's done and the whole process. So I basically figured it out and my video editing skills are good and my audio editing skills are good, but the tricky part of the IGTV is creating the proper thumbnail that it would appear correctly on your regular regular timeline in your IG and equally appropriately on your IGTV page the thumbnail so I was able to figure that out and I proceeded to do like 22 videos I was in uh, in the zone and uh, yeah so please go and check it out this brings me full circle because my show as you know I've been putting it out constant consistently and that's basically audacity mp3 files and I was able to upload a couple of videos onto my regular I Instagram timeline, but they were those types that you had to scroll through each 60 seconds and it's kind of clunky and awkward. So I cracked the code and I was able to get these um, long form videos uh, limited to 15 minutes right now. Hopefully at some point I can get that up to an hour. 
so I can really get some good content up there. But the purpose of these videos on my IGTV are in, to integrate seamlessly into the podcast so that I can bring full circle the whole video aspect of it, which, as you know, we're all visual creatures and it really adds to the impact of the show. So I'm really grateful and happy that I took that effort to do that and get all of that information up. One of the reasons, as I said, why I wanted to drop so many videos at one time is I wanted to get that repository set up because I do want the show to expand. So share it with your friends, people that you know. And if you do want to share the videos and everything like that, they're branded out. They have my uh, information. I just ask that you just leave them intact and don't, you know, don't try to swipe and snipe them off me and, you know, put your own branding. I mean, this is the work that I put into it. So if you want to put, leave them intact the way they are and, and upload them and distribute it as much as you want, be my guest, I would actually, it would be great if you did that just to spread the word of the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast and get that knowledge out there. As you know, I'm not commercial. I don't advertise and I do this as a service to the listeners and a service to people who want to expand their mind, their thinking and their horizons and take that next step into self-realization. So go and check out my IGTV page and give me some feedback. Tell me what you think. This episode is going to be a book cast, and the book that I'm covering in this episode is going to be a book written by the Wu-Tang Clan leader, Riza, the Riza, and the name of his book is called The Way of the Wu, or The Way of Wu, which is his second book. His first book was The Wu-Tang Manual, which is a great book, and uh, this is his second book. It's called The Way of the Wu. You can get it on Amazon. And I suggest if you are a fan of RZA and the Wu-Tang, that you go on Amazon.com or whatever website of your choice, Barnes & Nobles, whatever, go and pick up the book, purchase it, put it in your own repository, in your own archives, and, and read the book because it's amazing, the masterpiece that, that RZA put out in this book, the philosophy and the integration of all the different elements of life and struggle and truth in, in this book. So go go pick up the book. Uh, between the two books, I would have to say, between the, the Wu-Tang Manual and the way, the Tao of the Wu, I would definitely pick up the Tao of the Wu. It's it's extremely evolved, and I put it up there with all of the canons of self-realization and knowledge like the Tao Te Ching and, and other books, because this is a masterpiece. So go check it out and support the Wu and support uh, the RZA. So basically what we're going to do here is I'm, I have three clips that I'm going to play. They're kind of lengthy. One clip, I believe, is about 16 minutes. Another one is about 30 minutes. And the last one, I, if I'm not mistaken, is about 40 minutes. So to keep it creative, commons, kosher, I'm going to you know, mix in a little bit of my own feedback. And I'm going to open up with my observations and my life experience. Because we, for the most part, we came up pretty much in similar environments, myself and, and, and Arisa, you know, New York, Brooklyn, and the whole, the whole nine. So I'm going to convey and relate my life experiences that kind of synchronize with uh, his and the book. I'm going to do that first, and then I'm going to proceed to play uh, three clips. So why don't you sit back and uh, enjoy? And let's get the technical credits and the legal stuff out of the way. The book, The Way of the Wu, was published in 2009 by the author Rizzer in association with Chris Norris. It's a book put out by uh, Riverhead. Berkeley Penguin Books, USA. One of the reasons why I really love this book is because it's, as I call it, battle-tested. And there's just a few philosophies uh, that are really battle-tested to this degree. The first one would be Stoicism. 
as represented by, actually from Zeno the Stoic in ancient Greece, but uh, a real student of that Stoicism and who put it into practice and got it battle-tested was the philosopher king Marcus Aurelius. And the real battle-testing there was he went and waged war campaigns against Germania or Germany, Gaul or what is known as France, and Britannia, which is now known as Britain. And he wrote in his book, The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, he expounded on his thoughts and his thought process and his philosophy and Stoicism in that book. So again, battle-tested. Another philosophy that is really uh, battle-tested, as it were, are the Japanese or Bushido philosophies, which are contained in the book of Five Rings by uh, Musashi, Marimoto Musashi. Another one is The Art of War by Sun Tzu. And to some degree, really, um, the Jeet Kune Do, written by Bruce Lee, which is battle-tested in, in, in modern day. So that's a second book. And this third book, being um, the Wu-Tang, is battle-tested in, in the streets of Shaolin, in, the, in New York City, especially in the boroughs of Staten Island and, and Brooklyn. Now, that's not to say that the only living philosophy or way of life was only contained in those books because prior to these books being written, the Spartans, Alexander the Great, Hannibal Barca of Carthage, and as you know, um, Alexander the Great of Macedonia, were probably the two greatest uh, generals and strategists of all time, and they didn't have this philosophy. But in those days, it was a very different time because if you were a person that wasn't hardened and a person that was ready to meet whatever challenge was put in front of you, if you were a little bit soft around the edges, as it were, you'd be wiped out and your village would be gone. So these men, it's not so much that they loved to campaign war, but they anticipated uh, events, they observed timing and patterns around them, and in the case of Alexander the Great, he knew that the Persians were getting ready to basically invade and take over his whole people on his land so he preempted them and he took over the persians masterfully probably the greatest general of all time and then the second i feel in my opinion he's my favorite but i will say probably the second greatest but he's my favorite general of all time which is hannibal barker of carthage and he was the one that invaded rome with the elephants over the uh italian alps and you know history till this day we still speak about him these these great men of old, you know, when they went into battle, it wasn't like today where they had binoculars and, you know, electronic surveillance and, you know, Google Maps and drones. These men, you know, specifically, you know, Alexander the Great and Hannibal Barker, when they went to battle, they literally were the first ones to dash into the front fighting line themselves first, sword in hand, uh, to fight the enemy hand to hand. And their men would see them and say, oh shit, you know, they would just jump in headlong alongside their their leaders, their kings, basically, and fight alongside them. What kind of motivation is that? I mean, that that how, how can you lose, you know, when you have that type of leadership who, who is, you know, showing you by example how to to do these strategic maneuvers and, and to do this, wage this war for your country and for your, for your fellow people. So... Even though they didn't have this philosophy, they had it ingrained with them. So, twofold thing, you know, yes, these uh, great books of philosophy are, are written in Tinte Papel, or pen and paper, uh, paper and uh, ink, 
as they say in Spanish, but it was it's also written in our souls and in our DNA, like how just to defend what's ours and to take the steps whatever necessary. Again, I'm very anti-war, and that's why you'll never hear me speak about... I don't want to mention any names, um, but I really don't... A lot of people today, they worship these military guys. You know, they go into battle, and they have these laser beams and drones and plane support, and they'll be waging war, get some dude on a camel with an M16, and you know, and then they glorify him because he wins the battle. To me, that's really not impressive. As a matter of fact, to me, that that's something you're going to pay for at some point. But that's a whole different. That's a whole different story. Uh, that's that's in God's hands. So we'll just continue on. Back in episode uh, one twenty six and episode one thirty three, I interviewed my boy uh, Javier Trujillo, who was a professional MMA fighter and an MMA champ. He won a championship out of Thailand. And uh, during the course of the interview, you can go back and check it. I, I said to him, I said, Javi. What exactly are you thinking when they close the door in that cage on that octagon and you're face-to-face ready to engage in combat with a trained combat fighter like yourself? What exactly are you thinking? And he really gave me the perfect Bushido answer. He said, "He said um, I've already done all of the thinking prior to entering that cage during my training, during my exercises, and during my different disciplines that I have to conduct in and uh, when that door closes on the cage the time for thinking is over and it's time to execute and I enter the void and I was like oh shit so I, I put a couple of beats on t- some Wu-Tang beats on it and uh, put it up on YouTube I think he knocked the dude out in front of him in five seconds it's one of the fastest KOs in MMA history so a big shout out to the honey badger Javier Trujillo Mexicano Duro El Duro as I call him shout out brother so like I said you know Listening and reading this, the Tao of Wu from written by Riza, I saw many, many parallels between our lives. I mean, he is about 10 years younger than I am. I was born in 1959 and he was born in 1969. But we basically came up in the real same era. I was just a couple of years before him. And I actually took a lot of notes and stuff I was going to get into and experiences that I had in life and things that I had that were real similar to him. I'm not trying to put myself at his level, but we did come up in the same era in the same area. But um, he just expresses it so much better. He gets into the supreme mathematics and the supreme knowledge and the five percenter and, and such, which is a lot of stuff that I kind of grew up with myself. A lot of my friends and a lot of experiences that I had, you know, we came up in the same thing because I, even as a young man, as a young person, I... I had a thirst and a hunger for knowledge, so I was had a lot of different friends and a lot of different people, a lot of different experiences, and uh, I did have some 5% of friends, and I was uh, kind of integrating with that supreme knowledge and that 5% uh, stuff that was going back over there on Atlantic Avenue, Fulton Street, you know, in downtown Brooklyn, man, I was into that stuff, and uh, yeah, it, it was an amazing time, and, and RZA just expresses it so well that I would, if I got into my stories of it and my wording of it it would just uh tinge it and you know wouldn't add anything to the stew that Riz has already cooked up so we're gonna take a look at uh the Wu-Tang Clan and the RZA specifically now before I roll these tracks just be advised that what I ended up doing was the actual book the way of the Tao of Wu that I purchased I ended up scanning it and then running it through a PDF slash audio reader. So you're going to hear that robotic voice 
Unfortunately, we don't get to hear the masterful voice of Sensei Rizza as far as his teachings and his doctrines. So you can hear a computerized voice, but the wisdom, knowledge, power, and understanding the supreme mathematics still comes through. So bear with it. Within a couple of minutes, we'll adjust to that computerized voice and receive this teaching and this download. So let's get into it. A game of chess is like a sword fight. You must think first before you move. style is immensely strong and immune to nearly any weapon. When it's properly used, it's almost invincible. Yo, 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 man, hold on, hold on. Yo, man, where my killer tape at, yeah? First of all, where, yo, my, yo, where the fuck is my tape at? Yo, Sean, I ain't got that piece, man. How you ain't got my shit, but I let you hold it, man? Yo, niggas came over to have 40s and blunts, kid. The shit just came Come on, out man, I don't got nothing to do with my shit, man. Come on, man, get ahead with that Come shit. Come on, man, I'll buy you four more fucking killer tapes, Open the door, man. man. What the fuck, man? Yo, what? Yo, yo, yo. Hey, yo, 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 yo. Sean Meek just got busted in his head two times, guy. The mother. Yeah. Well, life, guys. You know Sean Meek for fucking 212, guy. Yeah, yeah. The nigga just got bust. Niggas in the black land, God, where's his bond? Came through, God, from out of nowhere, God, where's his bond? I'm coming to get my culture cypher, God. And they just, where's his bond? Crazy shots just went the fuck off, God. The nigga laying there like a fucking newborn fucking baby, God. Is he fucking dead? What the fuck you mean is he fucking dead, God? Fuck you think? The nigga laying there with this fucking all types of fucking blood hey, coming out of his fucking. Yo, God, what's up, guy? It's the God, God. What is wrong? Yo, what's up? I'm ready to fucking late. I'm ready to get busy, guy. What's up? Yo, let's what's up, yo? Yo, let's go do what we gotta do, man. Fuck. Yo, we out of what? It's the God, God. Fuck that, man. Hey, we out? They probably yo, took the tape. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck is you hey. talking about? Get the fuck, fuck out of here, Fuck. Inspector, bad man from the badlands of the killer, rap fanatic, representing. 
them Now lo and behold, another deadly episode Bound to catch another fucking charge when I explode Slamming a hype-ass verse to your head first I ramshack dead in the track and that's that Rap assassin, faster, quick to blast And hard rock, I ran up in spots like Ford Knox Some hot, top-notch ghost things with logic Flashbacks how I attacked your whole project I'm raw, I'm rugged and raw I repeat, if I die, my seed don't be ill like me Approaching me, you out of respect I get vexed like crashing up a fat ass leg So clear the way, make way, yo, open the gate Peace of mouth, chanting like a runaway yo, slave You're getting stripped from your garments, boy Run your jewels, hold the mouth Got me open like a lopian tool I went death to a snake when he least expect Ain't a damn thing, tank boy, protect your neck Rule a zigzag, take a large jam is fatal Quick to stick my Wu-Tang sport Right through your navel, suspenseful Thoughts being bought through my utensil The pencil, I bring strong winds up against you if you live in the projects, you don't leave them much. Everything is right there, laundry, grocery store, check cashing place all set up so you can live your whole life in a four block radius, I've lived in at least 10 different projects in New York Van Dyke in Brownsville, Marcus Garvey in East New York, Park Hill and Stapleton in Staten Island and they all taught me some, ing, even if they were lessons no one would choose, imagine you're 8 years old, going to the store with 35 cents to buy a pack of now and laters and a bag of sunflower seeds. You get there, three teenagers choke W2I with an umbrella, take your 35 cents, and buy cigarettes. That's the project's math and economics class on every block. Imagine you live with 18 relatives in a two-bedroom apartment across the street from the courthouse and county jail. You wonder why the jail and courthouse are so close to the projects, when you get locked up there a few years later, you learn. You learn CITES government, law, and science every day especially science. Because the projects, like jail, is a science project. One no one expects you to leave. I did leave moved out of Stapleton projects at 23 in 1992 and not long after that, my brothers in the Wu-Tang clan and I became citizens of the world. But those project lessons are still with all of us, one of the foundations for wisdom. They're the darkness that lets us see light. Pi give you an example. In 1978, my mother, who worked in a numbers house, hit the number for about 4 G's enough money to move 8 of us into a 3 bedroom place on Dumont Avenue. This was in Marcus Garvey, a violent ghetto, but for a minute there we felt like the white kids on the TV show 8 is enough, eight kids with toys, bikes, and a new home. But before we could move in, the place was robbed. All our stuffed toys, bikes, furniture was gone, right before Christmas. We were heartbroken but moved in anyway, and before long I got to know our next door neighbor, Chili Wop, Chili Wop was the coolest motherfucker you'd ever meet. He was a drug dealer with muscles, gold chains, mad style, and a crazy way of talking. Wajuwup, he'd yell. It's chili wop, nigga, what? For some REA son, chili wop took a liking to me. He started taking me on trips drug runs, really, although I didn't know it at the time and began looking out for me. Chili wop became an ally, a protector in a violent world. Finally, after I'd lived there for nearly two years, he told me something. When y'all first moved in, L robbed your house, my on. 
never knew you was gonna be a cool family. When he told me, there wasn't much I could do about it, and by then he was like my best friend or as they say in the hood nowadays, my big homie so in a way it was cool. That's just one hood lesson, your allies can arrive as enemies, blessings as a curse. When I was 10, Chili Wop was 16. By the time I was 11, Chili Wop's crew was shot up by rival drug dealers, and he ended up in jail. That was life on Dumont Avenue, which I now see for what it was, hell a hell of violence, addiction, misery, and humiliation. These forces were in even the air and water, in times of heavy rain, human excrement floated by under our basement-level bedroom, where me and my five brothers slept on two twin beds. No one chooses to live like that, but I now see that even that experience living where shit floats was a source of precious wisdom. It's like a story from the life of Da Mo, the Indian monk who brought Zen Buddhism to China. One day, Da Mo was talking with another monk, who began to denounce mud saying how dirty it was, how a man should stay clean, keep away from mud. But Damo observed that the lotus grows on mud, how can you defame mud when such a beautiful flower grows from it, he asked. Daemo's teachings reached everywhere from the samurai class of Japan to the kung fu monks of Shaolin to the housing projects of Staten Island. I apply Daemo's wisdom to the projects. I believe the misery there brought forth a certain flower that wouldn't have grown anywhere else, T was 13 years old when I saw the kung fu film The 36th Chamber of Shaolin, the story of a man who trains to be a Shaolin monk then leaves the temple to teach the world their style of kung fu. Nine years later, I formed the Wu-Tang Clan and we left Staten Island to teach the world our style of hip-hop. Eight years after that, I came to the original Shaolin, saw the real Wu-Tang Mountain and saw that it was all part of one whole. I saw that we really were what we'd always claimed to be, men of Wu-Tang. Shaolin is about as far from Staten Island as you can get. It's on Mount Song, the center peak of Taoism's five great mountains in China, a sacred place, high above the banks of the Yellow River. There on the mountain's western edge stands the Shaolin Temple, low and sturdy, red walls and round windows, the same courtyard where monks have practiced Kung Fu ever since Da Mo visited to the 6th century. Shaolin is 7,000 miles from New York City. Wulang Mountain is even farther. 5,000 feet above sea level, a five-hour bus ride through winding Iuntan roads, and a home to Taoist monasteries going luck 1,500 years. But when we stood on this mountain and looked up at the range of peaks called the Nine Dragons, this is what we saw, three mountains forming a giant W the symbol I chose to represent a few of nine men, nine years earlier. It was as plain as day, and has been for a million years. But some things aren't visible until you're truly ready to see them. Stood there with Shi Yanming, a man I call Saifu, which means teacher. He's a 34th generation Shaolin monk who defected to the United States the same year we formed Wu-Tang. As we looked over the mountains, Saifu and I talked about the original Wu Ling how it was founded by a monk named Zhang Anfeng, who had been banished to this mountain for, I using violence and doing wrong. Zhang Sanfen came low the mountain to meditate and find God and eventually founded the Wu-Tang. Our crew had lots of mean innies for the words Wu-Tang witty, unpredictable talent and natural game, we usually take another niggas garments in China, I learned another, 
the original one, man who is deserving of God. The RZA6 so in that sense, we are all Wu-Tang. You are Wu-Tang. If you ever stood on a mountain or by an ocean and felt a deep connection, a vast infinite presence inside you, you felt it, what Taoists call oneness, Muslims call Allah, others call God. That's what I felt on Wu-Tang Mountain, but it's also what I felt in Staten Island and even Dumont Avenue in Brooklyn only dimmer, Keiter. Allah's truth is within us all, all the time a seed waiting for light to help it grow. Wisdom is the light. This is a book of wisdom and accumulation of songs, parables, meditations, and experiences to help manifest that truth in your life. Wisdom is what shows those in darkness the light, what reveals the path or the way. It's what we all need to live. The sutras of the Bud Dha teach that without wisdom there is no gain. In the Bible's book of Proverbs, King Solomon chooses wisdom over all the other gifts that God offers him long life, riches, fame but through wisdom achieved these gifts and many more, including 700 wives. In Islam's divine mathematics, we learn that wisdom is the two after one, which is knowledge it is proof of knowledge, reflection of knowledge, knowledge in a session. In my life, all these understandings of wisdom have proven true. Krishna said that you can study all day, pray all day, chant all day, but you'll get to heaven faster if you hang with wise men. I've been blessed by wise men my whole life whether it was my cousin Jizye, who first taught me mathematics, my Chinese brother Saifu, who teaches me Kung Fu, or the philosophy students I met in Athens, the villagers I shared mud huts with in Africa, the audio inventors I worked with in Switzerland, the film directors in Hollywood, the mullahs of Egypt. The kind of artist that I am, I tend to meet people who want to show me something, and I'm always down to learn. In the Wu-Tang clan, am known as the abbot which, like Saifu, means teacher but a real teacher is also a student, someone who never stops learning. The book of Proverbs says that King Solomon sought wisdom from the cradle to the grave. That's a way of saying he sought rebirth, just as you must come through a woman's womb to attain physical birth, so must you come through wisdom to achieve mental birth. And like childbirth, wisdom often comes with pain. Pain, joy, ear all have borne in me wisdom, which, like water, is an ever-flowing spring from a bottomless ocean, a flow of life that takes the shape of any vessel, that reveals itself in all bodies and all moments. For wisdom is the way. You've been given the chance to hear the true and living so do the knowledge, son, before you do the wisdom. RZA, a day to GOP is 1000 years the Tao of Wu first pillar of wisdom the call from the heart of Medina to the head of Fort Green now YC, now I see everything RZA, n.y.c ever you and let the caller and the called disappear, be lost in the call. N and every story and life, there's a call. In the book of Lyxidus, it comes to Moses after he leaves Egypt as a shepherd, one of his sheep gets away, he goes looking for it on a mountain, and he hears a voice God calling to him. In the Quran, it comes to Muhammad after he's liat kids and has lived a full, righteous life, he's 40 years old and meditating in a cave, and he hears a voice Allah calling him to be a prophet. Or look at Santee, in the film 36th Chamber, he's out in the countryside rebelling against the Manchu government and sees a dude break a box of fish open with his bare hands. 
He asks him, how'd you do that, and the guy says, it's Kung Fu, I learned it at Shaolin. That one word, Shaolin, was a call to San Tee what sent him to seek knowledge, become a monk, and spread the wisdom of Kung Fu around the world. I believe the call can come to anyone, at any time. I know because it came to me, one night in a Staten Island housing project, in July of 1976. I was born Robert Fitzgerald Diggs, in Brownsville, Brooklyn, to one of the biggest families in New York. My mother had 11 kids, so she's responsible for 35, 40 people. My great-uncle had 8 children one of whom would become up-dirty bastards so that sprouted another 40, 50 people, and it goes on from there. Through marriage and bloodline, we spread across all five boroughs. Part of the reason is we were scattered from the beginning. My family broke up when I was three years old. In my last memory of my father, he's holding me in one hand and a hammer in the other, smashing up the furniture. Since my mother couldn't afford to raise the five of us herself, she sent us away, and I went off to live with her father's family in North Carolina. That's where I got to know my Uncle Hollis, the first wise man in my life. Hollis had that Solomon kind of wisdom. He was a doctor, a wealthy man with hundreds of acres of land, many adopted children, and a joy of life that followed him everywhere. He was the kind of man you'd have to call enlightened. Every one of my mom's brothers and sisters had a different father, and her father's family didn't like my grandmother, who had my mom's when she was 16. But Hollis had love for his brother's daughter. He was always checking up on her, trying to put her in school although she never went, and just kept having kids instead. But Hollis had a compulsion to look care of these kids, especially me. As soon as I got down to North Carolina, Hollis started leeching me things, setting aside books for me to read, seeing, Bobby, I want you to study. Before I turned four, was doing my older brother's homework. From Hollis I learned about science and religion, but also poetry and spoken word. One of the first books he gave me was a COL lection of Mother Goose Rhymes which I started memorizing immediately and he was always going around saying these strange verses. Never cry when a hearse goes by, he'd say. Because you may be the next to die. They'll cover you with a cold white sheet. They'll put you down about six feet deep. It's NOL so bad the first few weeks, until you start to mumble and creep, and the worms crawl in and the worms crawl IL, and the ants play pinnacle on your snout, your slomic turns the sickest green as pus runs out like thick whipped cream, it was an old southern folk rhyme one of many Hollis used to say and before long I started saying it myself. Hollis also took us to church every Sunday. It was an old southern Baptist church where the services bugged me out. I loved the Bible stories I was reading, but I didn't like this room where people were falling out, catching the Holy Ghost, slobbering all over the place. That happened in a lot of black churches, and I could immediately see it was phony. The screaming and moaning just didn't feel right. The Spirit of God sounded beautiful to me, but I quickly separated the experience of God from church. I just couldn't see God in the fake-ass preachers or people wallowing on the ground but I could see him in Hollis, my first real teacher. Then, when I was seven, my mother called us back to New York.
eight of us moved in with her at Marcus Garvey Projects in Brooklyn. There, a different kind of education began. Our place was on Dumont Avenue, right across the street from Betsy Head Pool a vicious, violent place, the kind you definitely weren't coming back from with your sneakers. Kids from Brownsville Projects, Tilden Projects, Van Dyke Projects, and Marcus Garvey used to hang out there, and two guys named Big Head Mike hung at the basketball court next door. One was Mike Tyson, the other was a drug dealer who later shot up our stoop trying to get a rival dealer, who happened to be my friend Chili Wop. My second night living there, I got jacked at the store by, live teenagers. When I got home, my mother asked me what happened, when I told her, she grabbed me and a hers knife and, still in her nightgown, walked me lick to the store, looking for these motherfuckers. That was when I got a sense of the family with me now. But the fact is, at this point I was a nerd, deep into hooks, saying yes, sir, no, ma'am, going to church every Sunday. I may have been staying in the hood, but I was living in my head. That changed in the summer of 1976. Something was happening in New York that year. There was a force in the air that didn't have a name yet. And this one afternoon, it was alive at a block party in the Hark Hill Projects in Staten Island. I had come by to visit Fi Cousin Gary, who would become the GZA. There, between the two buildings where kids played stick ball, someone, JS had plugged their systems into the lights. I remember walling in, hearing the sound, feeling the energy, and get e sucked in. It was DJ Jones, and the MCS were MC Punch and Winnie, they were on the mic saying just a couple of very simple rhymes, the same two or three lines all night Ioni, that was rap way back then just one or two Jilliuses repeated. Like a mantra. And when I heard that heat and those rhymes, I felt a euphoria I can't even explain, ended up staying there through the night, not piding back to the house until 11 o'clock and getting one, AUS whooping from my mother. Because in that parking lot, I heard the love of my life calling to me. The night was cooling off, I was dancing with a girl me just 8 years old and doing the whop, grinding up on her, freaking her. Then I heard one of those MCS. Back then, songs were sung, instruments were played. This was the voice of a man speaking words over music. It sounds crazy now TVE written thousands and thousands of lyrics since then, even lyrics jumping off Hollis's folk rhymes with the group Grave Diggaz, on an album called Six Feet Deep. But that night, these were the first words I heard spoken over a beat. It's like it says in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the word. And to me, those words weren't just rap lyrics. They spoke to something inherent in me. If you ask my older brother, he'll tell you I was reading Dr. Seuss in rhyme and rhythm at age three. But up until that night, P.D. been living in my head. These words and this music, they were a call a call to something deep inside me. They were a call to my soul. And it came in a simple party rap, a few lines that went on through the night. Dip dip. Dive so socialize clean out your ears open your eyes, be backslash open your mind, body, ancip God's voice in whatever that bears it. Let it pull you into the world.
Island A Parable of Solitude I spent my formative years on an island Staten Island which is a blessing I've taken with me through life. Many cultures consider an island to be the ideal home. First, because you're surrounded by water, which is life. Seconds aunt, because you're isolated from the masses, which allows you to find yourself, to develop inner strengths you could or t find anywhere else. An island shows you the true nature of life itself. In Staten Island, Wu-Tang niggas were set apart from all the influences and fads that were happening in the other four boroughs. I believe that while everything else in hip-hop culture was in constant flux, this island was nurturing something ancient. When you watch a movie like Godzilla, you see them go out to one of these tiny remote islands and find Mothra. It was the same way with us. A nine-man hip-hop crew based on Mathemat ICS, chess, comics, and kung fu flicks wasn't springing up in the middle of a Manhattan art scene. Only on a remote island can something like King Kong grow to his Yule capacity. When I first bought a house out in New Jersey, I got it 464 Wu House, but the rest of the members couldn't stand helling there they wanted to be in the city. But for me this Temote house, this island, was the best place to be. It's a place to break off the antennas on top of buildings, to leak away from those frequencies, to break away from Ryrie body's hustle and negativity. A place to reconnect with your own strength. My kung fu teacher Saifu would come out to this backslash used to train me. My uncle, who was also a martial art isil, used to live and train there too. In fact, it was out in his island that he developed a style he called the university or i-African fighting style. Eventually, he ended up being G-I-ducted into the Martial Arts Hall of Fame, all because Hai had developed something special a combination of Jiu-Jitsu, Karate, and Samurai. My uncle was inducted by Moses Powell, the Jiu-Jitsu expert who founded the style known as Sinus's Ryu. If you're enjoying this bookcast, just let me know by email or comments uh, to continue because I still have like another two, three hours of audio content from the book so just let me know and i'll put it up on future episodes i gotta interrupt i gotta interrupt the word, word. special request just came over the fax line <laughs> just came i just got email one of my, my buddies aol buddies Yo. king tech is requesting that deck king tech a verse yeah I'm a, I'm a splashy right now, but yo, let me get another groove. Let me get another groove. That's easy to do. Check, check you, it. You, it's not too check, many. You got it. Check, this check sounds it. perfect for check you. Represent, yeah. represent, hold on, hold on. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. Bar Digital located inside your hood again. Last scene helping the crack thing in the detox. Smacking this cat in the neck for snatching Reeboks. Cut the dreadlocks. Now rock the ball seats up. Allow God to slide through the customs. More easier. Police report stated that they almost trapped Bobby. Near the staircase outside of 240 lobby. But sun just disappeared in thin air. Where you crab niggas want to go? I've been there. We carry big guns without being parried. Yo, my Cali niggas say it's carry. Don't waste your mind on time. Don't chase the blind. Don't eat swine. Don't play with loaded nines. Don't quote weak rhymes. If you approach my brother in need, give him shine. Show him light. Don't get emotional, son. Don't fight unless it's self-defense. Then break that savage back so it's true could be convinced that anytime you cross the line, we snap spines. Split your melon down to the rhyme. You be buffed up. No telling from the way I talk. No telling what you might hear. 
fear The words of wisdom is like a magnet to the ear We come to show you love, son, so let me show you Whether you my bitch, my nigga, or I don't know you Wu-Tang show you love, so let me show you Whether you my bitch, my nigga, or I don't know you Yeah, 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 let me show you Exclusive from the Bobby Digi Let me show you Yeah, yo I'm about to blast off on y'all First thing, first thing I need y'all to know Raleigh Fingers disappeared He's on the MIA list Respect the deck, new name It's the code name, Manifesto You know what I mean? mean? That's the new joint for the two grand, my man So, in 1993 The Wu-Tang Clan dropped their first album Which is called 36 Chambers, Enter the Wu Till this day, many people say that it's the greatest rap album ever put out Or greatest album ever put out And I would... I would kind of tend to agree. I would say it's the greatest rap album ever put out because it was a lot more than just an album and a lot more than just songs. It was a whole philosophy that was that they dropped on us and that if you were able to accept that teaching and that music because it's more than just beats and music. It's, it, it's really a philosophy and the teaching that they were dropping on that album. So if you were in a position to accept that, it was really life-changing. So at that time in 1993, some of the top... Uh, records and albums that were put out rap albums among them was uh a group by the name of black moon which is buckshot shorty and the name of that is enter the stage i play i play some buckshot shorty i play some black moon on it and uh, yo they're sick like they're way underrated man their, their music is is really amazing man really great it really hits you another album that was put out on the west coast by cypress hill was black sunday um, the Ghetto Boys with that song Mind Playing Tricks on Me, on and on. And the thread that you see with all of these songs, uh, and Onyx with, with Back the Fuck Up, a, lot, a thread that you see running through all of these, and, and mind, Be Mindful of the Year, 1993, the thread running through that is violence and killing and shooting and stuff like that. But when the wood dropped the 36 Chambers, they don't really get into all of that as far as, you know, I'm going to shoot you and victimize you and all this stuff. They were just getting into echoing the environment that they were in so yeah there's some roughneck tracks on that and you'll hear you know a lot of roughneck shit on it but what underlies that whole album is a camaraderie or brotherhood and a connection between all people you know if you listen to it i'll be honest like some of that music when you even get into that a uh, black moon i played on my podcast um a lot of these albums i played get boys on my podcast i mean i'd be feeling that shit it's, it's, it's good music but i see it from a different perspective today with the knowledge that I've gained and I see how um, to get back to that uh, meeting in 1991 where there was a meeting between the music executives and the privatized prison systems where they actually instructed the direction of music to go into this gangster rap that end up, ended up really filling up these privatized prisons for profit and a lot of my brothers and sisters getting locked up as a result of that and uh the inability for them to process. They would see a paycheck in front of them and says, you know what I want to eat and I'm going to put out this gangster rap. You know, and, and we all see what happened as a result of that, which which is really not good, man. But the Wu-Tang didn't go in that direction, man. They were able to see the patterns and timing of what was going on and their music stands up right now. So, the real genius of the Wu-Tang and the RZA specifically is that he was able to synchronize two completely different elements of knowledge and one of that being the whole supreme knowledge with the mathematics the five percenter the ghetto brooklyn new york 
aspects of knowledge and understanding and integrate that with 2,600-year-old philosophy of the Tao and of these Shaolin monks, these teachings. And he was able to cohesively integrate both of them into a masterpiece. And that masterpiece is The Way of Wu, written by Rizzo, as I said. So, like I said, we're going to play some clips right now. I have three clips that I'm going to play. And... I really want you to, you know, you got to pay pay close attention to this because he gets a little technical and some of that speak gets real urban, gets real Brooklyn-y. And uh, yeah, but there's a deep, profound teaching within this. And the beauty of it is you're going to be listening to a man that came from the bottom of the barrel, from just the lowest of the low. And he utilized that as fuel to propel him and his clan and his group up uh, to the level that they are right now. So, yeah, man, let's get into it. Noel passed away recently, but he was one of the top, hit martial artists in the country. He trained CIA men, lemonstrate for the United Nations, and taught war IORs in many different fields. But when my uncle went Thai study with him, he told my uncle something important. He said, what you got is unique. He let him know that Lai was blessed, that he had it already within him. Advise everyone to find an island in this life. Find a place where this culture can't take energy from you, sap your will and originality. Since anything physical can be mental, that island can be your home, turn off the electromagnetic waves being forced upon you, the countless invisible forces coming at you all the time. Find an island, turn inward, discover your true strength. The art of listening Amon thinks seven times before he speaks. It's harder to make the glass than break the glass. Second pillar of wisdom knowledge on the corner of my block there stood this old man a black immigrant from the land of Sudan who used to tell stories to the children in the building flit never had a dollar to keep his pocket filled in he bombed, he knew Deuteronomy the science of astronomy fit didn't know the basic principles of economy I say the wise man don't play the role of a fool he first thing a man must obtain is 12 jewels I iolage wisdom understanding to help you achieve. Vaidam, justice, equality, food, clothing, and shelter liar this, love, peace, and happiness he had the nappiest head, I told him total satisfaction e, zero achieve one goal in the scheme of things he who works like a slave, eats like a king twelve jewels, grave dig as hen I stayed down south, Uncle Hollis was my W teacher. In the streets of New York, we taught each other. Cousins, hustlers, gangsters they were all part of my extended family, and each one taught me something. For example, when I was nine my cousin Vince turned me on to kung fu flicks. He'd take me to the 42nd Street Theaters in Manhattan, where they played triple features for $1.50. That's where I first saw the Shaw Broth ERS The Five Deadly Venoms, a film that sparked a lifelong obsession. By the time The Empire Strikes Back came out, In 1979, everyone at school was talking about that. I'd be saying, you seen five deadly venoms, and no one knew what I was talking about. But in 1980, another cousin hooked me up with some different wisdom, a kind they weren't talking about in school. And for me, this wisdom changed the whole world. All through 1978 and 79, as I was living in Brownsville writing rhymes, chasing hip-hop, digging kung fu flicks I kept looking forward to trips down south. 
I was hoping to get more one-on-one -on -one time with Uncle Hollis, to learn from this man who was like a father to me. Then after about a year of life in Brooklyn, my great-grandfather came over to bring me the news, Uncle Hollis passed away from a heart attack. That was the probably the last time I cried until my mom's died, decades later. I mean, like, cry, 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 like how they cry in the Bible wailing, gnashing teeth. It was the most painful experience of my life, and it secured my poverty. When Hollis passed there was no more connection to that family. Now my mother was four months behind in the rent, landlords were telling us to get out. We were about to lose our home to go from next to nothing to nothing. But right around that time, my cousin Daddyo asked me something. He said, Yo, you heard about those twelve jewels. I didn't know what he meant. Daddyo was a street hustler, a cool guy, not a spiritual man. But it turned out he was also a Muslim, someone whose other name, his righteous name, was born knowledge. He explained that these weren't physical jewels, like someone in the hood wore to display his wealth. They were mental jewels principles, ways of life and that by obtaining them you would find a different kind of wealth. He said the jewels were part of something called the lessons teachings from the nation of Islam. It would be a year or two before I heard about the lessons or the nation again. In fact, you're not even supposed to learn the twelve jewels first, you are supposed to learn them third after the supreme mathematics and the supreme alphabet. But back then all I wanted to know about were those jewels. And even today, the jewels are the precepts I advocate most. The jewels are as follows, knowledge, wisdom, understanding, freedom, justice, equality, food, clothing, shelter, love, peace, and happiness. Each jewel has its own profound meaning, and each one takes work and meditation to achieve, but they break down like a chain reaction. First a man gets knowledge, which is knowledge of self. Then he gets wisdom, which is the reflection of that knowledge. Then he gets understanding, which is the power to act on wisdom. With understanding he sees that he has freedom that he has freed his dome from ignorance which means he has free will. But freedom operates under a law, the law of justice. That means that I'm free to smack you in your face, but justice applies, there will be a reward or penalty for my actions. Therefore, I must deal with equality, because all men are created equal. By showing equality to one another we're activating freedom, justice and equality the fourth through sixth jewels. Now, those are all things that build a man's character. And after you attain them, you're able to strive for food, clothing, and shelter which also have both physical and mental meanings. Obviously, food is nourishment, shelter is a home, and clothing is protection. But mental food is food from the tree of life wisdom, science, history, food for your mind. Mental clothing is how you carry yourself the way you walk, the way you move and speak. If you have clothed yourself in righteousness, even the bummiest clothing has dignity. And mental shelter is the mind's protection from the evil atmosphere the lies and corruption of the outside world. So if you have these three jewels, your home is like a king's even if you're living in a shack. Soon enough, that's exactly how I was living. Right after Daddyo told me about the jewels, 
my family was kicked out of our home. My two brothers and I wound up in with our grandparents on 64 Targi Street in Staten Island. There the only mathematics being practiced was addition. First we were five. Then my aunt and her husband came back from the army and moved in with their daughter. We were eight. A month later, my uncle, his wife, and his daughter moved in from Minnesota. We were eleven. Then my other uncle, who was gay, popped up with his friend another gay dude who dressed like a woman and they moved in. We were thirteen. This kept up until I counted nineteen people living in a two-bedroom. Your bed was whatever spot you could grab on the floor. Your blankets were those gray wool mats that movers used to protect furniture. That's poverty in this country something that makes you small, shrinks your horizon, clouds your vision. But even when I was living like that, because of what Daddy O told me, I had faith that my mind could transform my the RZA 26 surroundings. Mathematics would form my first governing principles, but the jewels had the biggest impact on me. And that's probably because of when they found me right when everything else was being taken away. With the idea of the jewels, I got a sense that even if my body was in hell, my mind wasn't. Most people let their body lead their mind. When someone has a drug addiction, his body is addicted to the drug. Heroin is a physical addiction, if you don't get it, you get sick. But even though your body is addicted, your mind chastises you every time you use it. When your mind has attained these jewels, it leads the body. So even if you're in a physical eichel hell, by seeking the twelve jewels you let your mind lead your body to heaven. You don't get all twelve jewels at once you have to strive for them, prepare yourself for them. But after you attain the first nine, then you're ready to make your life truly satisfying. That's when you can attain love, which is the highest elevation of understanding either between two people or between all members of mankind. And after you attain love, then you have peace, and finally you get happiness which is total and complete satisfaction with yourself. This means you realize that nothing and nobody else can make you happy. Happiness is something you get from yourself. If you're completely satisfied with yourself, nobody can take it away from you. Years later, I realized that this principle, the last of the twelve jewels, applies to everyone, everywhere in the world. Two decades after my time on Targi Street, I went to West Africa as a rich and famous man. I went to visit my cousin and Wu-Tang brother Ghostface, who had gone to get treated for diabetes by a bush doctor that his herbalist in Staten Island recommended. The doctor's village was deep in the country of Benin hours from any city, a place with no running water, where people lived in mud huts and slept on the floor. At this point, I'd lived in the Trump Plaza, in a million-dollar home, deep in hanging with millionaires and even billionaires. I came to Benin having just stayed at the Metropolitan Hotel in London, at the Grand Hyatt in France, and in the London home of Richard Branson, the mogul who founded Virgin. I came to West Africa from the height of wealth and was blessed with a new understanding of poverty. The first place you reach from the airport is Cotonou, a crowded city of about a million people. Everyone there lives in apartment buildings and strives for a Western lifestyle. But when Ghost came in to meet me there, had been in the village a while. He was wearing an African dashiki, his hair had grown out, 
and he had a full beard, he looked like an African villager. Everybody on the street was dismissive of Ghost. But everyone was being cool with me trying to shake my hand and be my friend because I was dressed in hip-hop clothes. They thought I was somebody and Ghost was nobody. They were trying to be like Americans. I got into this beat-up Peugeot with Ghost and the 28 Bush doctor's right-hand man, and we headed out to the village. When we got there, I noticed something else. In the city, just about everyone I met had his hand out either asking for something or trying to sell me something. When we got to the village, everyone had his hand out in offering either something to eat, or directions, or some kind of help. They had less but they were offering more. I had brought some kung fu flicks with me because Ghost was jonesing and the bush doctor was into kung fu. So we sat in a hut before the one TV in the village and watched Blade of Fury a great movie, about a revolution where all the revolutionaries get killed but one kid survives and the master is still happy because he realizes that the revolution will be carried on. As we watched, all the kids in the village stood outside and watched through the window while we, the honored guests, sat inside. Years before, when we were living in the Park Hill PROJX in Staten Island, we'd always wonder why the Africans moving in seemed so happy. They were crammed into a room just like us but they were happy. They liked the PROJX. We hated the projects. The projects are the worst place you can be if you're watching TV, reading magazines, seeing people who have jobs and live in houses. We didn't understand the gangbangers in California. PD always complain, they flip in this set and that set and these motherfuckers got houses. We've got to live where you got two niggas on top of you, two niggas beside you, and neighbors that you hear moving around you at all times. But in Africa, I saw these people living on dirt. They had nothing but food, clothing, and shelter and a love of themselves. And so they had happiness, the twelfth jewel. It's within all of us. Western culture just makes it harder to find. Of course, back when I was a kid, I wasn't looking too hard. A year after Hollis died and Daddy-O told me about the twelve jewels, I had settled into life in the hood. Mad changes happen at that age, and by 1980 I was a street kid, a hip-hop fiend. I hated school and waited for each weekend, when I'd hang out with my cousin Gary, who would become the GZA, or my other cousin Russell, who would become Op Dirty Bastard. Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight came out the year before and showed us you could make a record with rhymes, so I wrote at least 20 songs that year, setting them to my mom's R&B records. Gary was a couple of years older and the guy who introduced me to hip-hop, so naturally looked up to him. And one spring day, that respect opened a door to enlightenment. You could say hip-hop was the vessel, but the message was Allah. At the time, I was staying at 64 Targhee Street right by the Stapleton Projects. Gary lived at 55 Bowing Street in the Park Hill Projects one of the toughest in New 29 the Tau of Wu the RZAW 30 York. To get there I could either walk a straight line down the street outside the projects, or I could go to the store, through Stapleton, and then through Park Hill. For some reason, I was the kind of kid who'd walk through two projects to get where I was going. Why do you go to the store first a little corner Puerto Rican bodega and I'd ask the hot dog guy, Mr. Harry, for food. 
T.D. say, Mr. Harry, I don't got no money, can I have a donut? And he'd give me a donut, maybe give me a hot dog. Then, I'd head into the projects. Everything was there, the music, the people, the sound, the color the place was alive. They had block parties going on all the time then DJ Jones, Dr. Rock and the Force M.D.S all playing in the park or on the plaza. So this one beautiful day in May, I came into those projects for hip hop to hear the music in the street and write times with Gary. But I went home with something even deeper. The minute I showed up, something about Gary was different. For one thing, he had a different name. We always used to call him by his government name, Gary, his nickname, Buck, or his tapper name, Gangstaji. But this day he said, my name is Allah Justice then he told me about knowledge, the first chamber of study in the nation of gods and earths. He said, yo, knowledge is the basic foundation of all life. And I was like, what you mean? We were standing outside his building, a block away from where I heard that first hip-hop party four years earlier. But for some reason, what GZA started saying and the way he said it hit me even harder than the MCS I'd heard that night. He told me about mathematics and knowledge of self and God. He's not a spirit, GZA said. God is you, he's inside you. Then he showed me a white sheet of paper. On the top were bold letters that read, All praise is due to Allah, Lord of all the world. It was the first page from the Divine Lessons, from the nation of gods and earths. The gods were the next generation of the nation of Islam, whose teachings had shaped giants like Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. The newer school was founded in 1964, by a Harlem student minister known as Clarence 13X, who we now call the Father. He was looking for a quicker and more powerful way to bring those teachings directly to America's black youth, so he condensed the nation's lost found lessons into a philosophical core called the 120, which formed the basis of the lessons taught by the 5% nation in New York lessons that had transformed my cousin Gary into Allah Justice. After we finished talking, Allah Justice gave me that first page of lessons to read on my own. At this point, I was miles from Uncle Hollis and his books. No one else I respected was telling me to get an education, but GZA did. He told me to educate myself, to seek knowledge on my own. We talked for a bit more, then I headed home in a kind of trance. The Tau W32, all the way home, about a mile long walk, I kept hearing in my mind, God, God, God. I walked past a fish and chips place with a pinball machine ringing inside. God, God, God. I walked past a Chinese restaurant, past a pizzeria. God, God, God. I walked down Targi by the Stapleton projects, which loomed like the Death Star. God, God, God. Then I passed a Christian church. In the streets, spiritual messages come in pamphlets. As I went by this church, a dude out front handed me one. It said the bread of life. I took it and kept walking. When I got home I memorized that sheet of mathematics quickly, but I was still hungry for knowledge. So I memorized the Christian pamphlets teaching about the Gospel of John. I'd heard Bible stories my whole life, 
but now that I had this personalized idea of knowledge in my head, it made the lessons of the Bible seem stringier. This time I understood how to read the Bible, how to look at it for what's real in my heart instead of what somebody's telling me. That night, I started reading the Bible. And kept reading until I finished it. The ancient Chinese philosopher Mengzi wrote, Truth out of season bears no fruit. To me, that means two things. One, there's a time and place for every kind of knowledge to flourish. Two, the personal characteristics of great messengers are usually irrelevant. For instance, they say that Martin Luther King Jr. was a fornicator. Does it matter? Do you believe in the messenger or his message? I believe in the message. That's why when read certain books or see certain films, I skip over the names, forget who said it if it's truth. For some reason, V.E. always felt that way, that knowledge is like God, out there behind labels and images. Eastern thought, Christianity, comic books, kung fu, they all have truths, and each truth has a season either in history or in your own life. And in the spring season of 1980, I was blessed with the truth of divine mathematics, through my cousin and enlightener, GZA. The next day, after I stayed up all night reading the Bible, I went back to him and started quoting back to him what I learned from the pamphlet and that first set of lessons. He was impressed with that, and he gave me the next set. It was time for me to find knowledge, but that meant that first I had to find knowledge of self. This is one kind of knowledge you can't seek. It's something you have to let happen to you through meditation, sitting quiet and alone, in contemplation. In the early ADS, when you came to mathematics, you had to fast for three days before they gave you the knowledge and began your training. It was like the test they give a Shaolin novice, to see if he's centered and committed. I did it when I was 11. After I officially began my studies of the lessons, GZA gave me the rest of the divine mathematics and the divine alphabet. Then I had to choose a name. He told 33 the Tao of Wu the RZA 34 me to think of my own name. I thought for a long time and came up with Rakim. He approved because he could call me RA and my moms would think he was saying Rob. This was important parents were kicking kids out for taking names, getting lessons. The 5% had a reputation Asa gang, as vicious, terrifying criminals. Even when I first heard GZA talking about the 5%, my first thought was, hold on, ain't those the guys that beat up my uncle last year? The rep came because a lot of them were tough niggas from jail who never really let those ways go, who weren't living the less sons righteously or were doing it imperfectly, let's say. They hadn't let go of their negative side. Turns out, neither had I. I started studying the lessons with my brother, Universal King. I loved the shit out of King, but he was a bully big brother. Today I realize that he made us all into war tires, but he did so much violence to us growing up that I didn't like him. So it was good to have something to build love between us, but it only went so far, at a certain point, my frustration with him came between me and righteousness. One day, we had a fight and I lost, as usual, and after this fight, I told him, fuck you. I ain't righteous no more. And laid a pork chop on him smothered in gravy, on a bed of rice. 
I figured that was the only way to hurt him. When I did that, I stopped reading the lessons. I stopped believing out of anger. But a year or so later, I was sitting down at the table at my grandmother's house, and my aunt's boyfriend was over. He was a heroin addict and clearly fucked up, nappy head, scraggly beard he looked kind of like a wino Jesus and he kept nodding off. My grandmother was making some food and asked him, you want some hot dogs, Donald? And he said, there better not be any pork in it when I heard him say that just mumbling in a kind of daze it spoke to me. Then he looked at me and said, the lessons are right, the gods are right. When he finished talking he got up and left, and my heart opened again. In a way, this doped up, nappy-headed junkie was like an angel. He wasn't living the lessons anymore and it showed. What my heart heard from him was, those lessons will save your life. I was 12 years old. That night got me back into it. The point is, sometimes you have to be called more than once. The angel called the prophet Muhammad saying, read. Muhammad was illiterate and said, T can't read. Read, the angel said again. I can't read, Muhammad said. Then the angel said, in the name of Allah who created man from a drop of blood read and it was the third time that he felt it. My first call came from Daddyo telling me about the twelve jewels. I heard it but didn't follow. The second came from GZA, who enlightened me, started me on the path, but I drifted out of anger. The third came from a 35 the Tao of Wu Dope Fiend, a man who once had knowledge of self but lost it, fell away into darkness. His call was the same as the other ones, but he was a living example of what happens when you stray. After that, I dove back into the lessons, mastered them in seven months. I didn't tell anybody. I fasted by myself. I studied only in the bathroom. And when I finally got up to the 1 to 14, the level my brother was at, a level good enough to be a man with it and really understand it, I told him. We were brothers again but in a deeper way than before. The third call was my final call. I was convinced, and once I mastered these lessons, I was able to understand every step of my life. The lessons begin with the 120. That's 120 lessons or degrees that help you understand man's relationship to the universe. I learned the 120 faster than anyone else in my neighborhood and had them down by the time I was 12 years old but it was only later that I realized just how deep they really were, how the wisdom of mathematics connected to the jewels of Eastern, Western, scientific, and religious thought and to the knowledge I already had in my heart. That's because mathematics is also what Euclid said it is, a description of the thoughts of God. And the only way to get to God is to find Him within yourself. But in mathematics, the method of instruction has a power of its own. When the father brought these lessons to lost and confused young black men like me, he was promising a transformation that the lessons actually providing. That fact is, if you get through the rigors of study with the gods, you truly are a different person. The 120 breaks down to 120 questions and answers. The first few, called the 1 to 10, are 10 questions that begin with who is the original man. The answer is, the original man is the Asiatic black man, the maker, 
the owner, the cream of the planet Earth, the father of civilization, and god of the universe. You have to memorize each question and answer verbatim, with every single AR title, noun, and verb correct. After the 1 to 10 comes the 236 which are 36 phrases. When I was learning them, I'd say, my name is Prince Rakim, I came to North America by myself. My uncle was brought over here by a trader 379 years ago. My uncle does not know he's my uncle. He doesn't speak his own language. The phrases go on and on. After mastering these, you move on to the 1 to 14, which are more intense. By this time, the answers are pages long. If you get through them, you've memorized thousands and thousands of words, in precise order. The main lesson people tend to get stuck on is the fourth, or culture, degree, from the 1 to 14. That's the one that deals with a man named Jacob, whose biblical name would be Jacob, father of the white race. What hangs students up here isn't the idea that the white race was a diabolical experiment any poor, black kid feels that way at some point in his life it's the length of the occasion and precision of the phrasing. The question reads, why do we run Jacob and his maid devil from the roots of civilization over the hot Arabian desert into the caves of West Asia as they now called Europe? What is the meaning of EU and rope? How long ago was it? What did the devil bring with him? What kind of life did the devil live then? How long was it before Musa came to teach the devil their forgotten trick knowledge? That's just the question. Now just imagine how long the answer is. The born degree, which comes after, is even longer. To a lot of guys in the ghetto, this was their education. I knew brothers who only graduated fifth grade yet were scientists because of the lessons. They learned geology, geometry, astronomy, physics, history all of it came through the lessons. What is the circumference of the earth? The circumference of the planet earth is approximately 25,000 miles. What is the diameter of the Earth? The diameter of the Earth is 7,926 miles. The total square miles of the Earth total square miles of land, total square miles of water. The weight of the planet. The speed of light, the speed of sound. You learned more than you would in school. The lessons are a map to realization they lead you to it in steps. The first step, or degree, is knowledge. We refer to the first task in any situation as doing the knowledge, which means to look, listen, and observe. But the power of the lessons didn't just come from the information they provided, it also came from their actual vocabulary and the cadence. It's like how they say that the Quran can be truly understood only in Arabic, because of the cadence of the language. The act of internalizing these the sword and you will join me choose the ball and you join your mother in death you don't understand my words but you must choose
wine niggas sipping apple bone This ain't a white cartoon Cause I be ducking crazy space The kid hold white shit like blacks rock ashy legs Why is the sky blue? Why is water wet? Why did Judas rat the Romans while Jesus slept? Stand up, you're out of luck like two dogs stuck Iron Man be sipping rum out of Stanley Cups Unflammable, Noriega, aiming nozzles Stay windy in Chicago, spine tingle, mind boggles Kangos and rainbow colors, promoters try to hold dough Give me mine before Poe, wrap you up in so-and-so I ran the dark ages, Constantine the Great, Henry the Ape Built with Genghis Kong and Red Suede while he gone I judge wisely, as if nothing ever surprised me Lounging between two pillars of ivory, I'm lively My dome piece is like building stones in Greece My poems are deep from ancient thrones I speak I'm overwhelmed as my mind roams around My eyes the visions, memory is the film Others act subtile, but they fragile above clouds They act wild and couldn't budge a crowd No matter how loud they get Throw they growl and spit, clutch their fists And throw up signs like a crypt And throw all types of fit I leave them split like ass cheeks and rag pussy Hey yo, camouflage chameleon Ninja skill in your building No time to grab the gun, they already got your wife and children A hit was sent from the president to raid your residence Because you had secret evidence and documents On how they raped the continents And list the prominent, dominant Islamic Asiatic, black Hebrew The year 2002, the battle's filled with the rules Six million devils just died from the bubonic flow Of the Ebola virus, under the reign of King Cyrus You can see the weakness of a man right through his iris Unlawed you snakes get thrown in boiling lakes of hot oil Uncoils your skin, chicken heads getting slim like olive oil Only plant the seed deep inside fertile soil Fortified with essential vitamin and minerals Use the sky for a blanket, stuff a cloud beside my pillow Rolling with the lamb, 12 tries, 144,000 chosen Protons, electrons always cause explosions The banks of G, all cream downs are back Money feet good, opposite soft the set It ain't hard to see, my C's need guard degree I got mouths to feed, unnecessary beef is more cows to breed I'm on some tax free shit by any means Whether the bounty hit scheme or some counterfeit cream With the knowledge that I've gained and I see how um, To get back to that uh, meeting in 1991 Where there was a meeting between the music executives And the privatized prison systems Where they actually instructed the direction of music to go into this gangster rap that end up, ended up really filling up these privatized prisons for profit and a lot of my brothers and sisters getting locked up as a result of that and uh, the inability for them to process they would see a paycheck in front of them that says you know what I want to eat and I'm going to put out this gangster rap you know and, and we all see what happened as a result of that which which is really not good man but the Wu-Tang didn't go in that direction, man. They were able to see the patterns and timing of what was going on, and their music stands up right now. So, the real genius of the Wu-Tang, and the RZA specifically, is that he was able to synchronize two completely different elements of knowledge, and one of that being the whole supreme knowledge with the mathematics, the five percenter, the ghetto Brooklyn, New York, aspects of knowledge and understanding and integrate that with 2,600-year-old philosophy of the Tao and of these Shaolin monks, these teachings. And he was able to cohesively integrate both of them into a masterpiece. And that masterpiece is The Way of Wu, written by Rizzo, as I said. So, like I said, we're going to play some clips right now. I have three clips that I'm going to play. And... I really want you to, you know, you got to pay play close attention to this because he gets a little technical and some of that speak gets real urban, gets real Brooklyn-y. And uh, yeah, 
but there's a deep, profound teaching within this. And the beauty of it is you, you're going to be listening to a man that came from the bottom of the barrel, from just the lowest of the low. And he utilized that as fuel to propel him and his clan and his group up uh, to the level that they are right now. So, yeah, man, let's get into it. And Lessons transforms you. It strengthens your mind. A few years ago, some British researchers did a study on cab drivers in London. They scanned their brains and found that the ones who had the most time on the streets had the largest hippocampi which is the part of the brain that handles memory. By mastering the streets in that city, they actually increased the size and changed the structure of their brains. In order to get qualified, each cab driver had to go through a training period in which they mastered all the geography in the city. What do they call this? Doing the knowledge. See. I believe the lessons provide something that everyone, of any race, needs, a sense of perspective of the size of the world, the scale of the universe, the place of man. The earth has only 57,250,000 square miles of land on it. And out of that, only 29 million is useful. This kind of information grounds you, shrinks your problems and expands your horizons at the same time. You can hear its wisdom in a verse by one of the greatest rappers of all time, Rakim, what would you say as the earth gets further and further away slash planets as small as balls of clay slash stray into the Milky Way, worlds out of sight slash as far as the eye can see, not even a satellite. That's a mind transformed by the lessons. Mathematics contains universal truths, but no one needed its wisdom more than poor black men at the end of the last century. So many of us were so lost deprived of knowledge of self, of others, of the world we lived in. Even in the Islamic world, commentaries on Muslim books were teaching that the black man comes from the grandson of Noah, who was Ham a man who was cursed, made to be despised, a servant, a slave. That's a myth, but it was a myth taught in both mosques and Christian churches, a myth taught to the slaves as well. If you were poor and black, Mathematics attacked the idea that you were meant to be ignorant, uneducated, blind to the world around you. It exposed the lies that helped people treat your forefathers as animals. And it wasn't until someone like the father came to actively disseminate this information to poor black men saying, hold on, your people are the fathers of civilization that people like me were set free. I can now say that if it wasn't for mathematics, I wouldn't have achieved anything. I never would have imagined that a poor black motherfucker like me would grow up to respect the world, his fellow man, or himself. The same thing happened to Malcolm X he's in jail, going through hell, and a man comes and tells him, you ain't no nigger. You're from the tribe of Shabazz. And right then, all his self-hatred turned to ashes. He heard the call and from every day on he was alive. That's what the lessons did for me. They gave me guidance, understanding, and freedom. But freedom from yourself? That's often a whole different story. 41 The Tao of Wu be open to the echoes of wisdom. Its truth will reveal itself in time. Was afraid as a child. I was afraid of everything. I was scared of water I couldn't swim I was scared of trucks on the turnpike, and mostly I was scared of ghosts. But at some point, I realized something. A ghost is something you create yourself a man's mind makes it happen. 
If there were nobody on Earth, would a ghost still have a chance to spook somebody? No. You manifest ghosts through fear. The words of Marcus Garvey resonated with me. He said, fear is a state of nervousness only fit for children. Men should not fear. The only thing man should fear is God. To fear anything other than God is to offend God carry that to this day, enlightened men do not fear. Horror they say wisdom is the wise words spoken by a brother attempting to open the graves of these mentally dead slaves RZA, Tuesday Bear, Broken Hearts, in this culture, some of the deepest wisdom comes from horror movies. A perfect example is Night of the Living Dead. That movie and its sequels teach you about life. For one thing, Night of the Living Dead predicted the dawn of crack. If you lived in the hood in the ADS, you saw that movie come to life on the street. There's a reason Public Enemy titled that song Night of the Living Base Heads. Secondly, Dawn of the Dead was the great metaphor for American society. The zombies were Americans, just walking through the mall, lost, trying to find excitement outside of themselves. They forgot that excitement is not buying a new TV, it's taking your shoes off and walking in the grass in your backyard. All those movies were really showing us ourselves. When I first saw Night of the Living Dead, was scared to death. But when I watched it again at age 16, when they were up to Day of the Dead, TD gotten knowledge of myself, and could relate to what it was saying about America. The dead were alive, but they were blind, deaf, and dumb. So to me, they were symbolic of black men in America. The dead in those movies are alive that's just a description of physical matter, it's active but they don't have life. Life comes when you have knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, when you can see for real, touch and feel for real, know for real. Then you are truly living. Finally, all the of the dead films work as metaphors for the 5%. The survivors are holdouts living among the mentally dead. And interestingly, they tend to be led by black men. At the same time, though, after the black man survives he fights off destruction through the whole movie a white man kills him. Chess lessons when I was 11 years old, three major changes hit me, one, I found knowledge of self, two, I lost my virginity, three, I learned to play chess. The last two were actually with the same person an older girl in the neighborhood but then again we call women wisdom, so maybe it was meant to be. Chess became a source of wisdom that has been with me my whole life. The game began centuries ago in India. In a way, it's metaphysics as a board game. The board's number of squares is 64, which is a crucial number in mathematics. 64 is also the number of creation. When the sperm meets the egg and they have meiosis, it splits into 64 separate cells 2 to 4, 4 to 8, then 8 to 64, the basic number of life. When people say chess is life, they may not even know how much truth they're speaking. Chess is also a martial art. It's about combat and directing chi when you're on a streak in chess, your yusu ally on a streak in everything in your life. You're in balance you're pushing energy forth, you're an unbeatable warrior. I know that happens with me. If I'm on point in my life, you better not test me on the chessboard. You'll lose. 
I used to play older men in Wall Street around the same time that Josh Waitskin the child chess prodigy who inspired the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer was whooping older dudes asses in Washington Square Park. I'm a fan of Bobby Fischer and a fan of Josh, who's now a friend. Years after he was the world chess champion for his age group, he went on to become a martial arts champ, and he says that chess revealed the learning ability why that would allow him to dominate Tai Chi Chuan. Chess will do that. Even the simplest game teaches you something. Probably the simplest game of all is the one called Hool's Mate. It's checkmate in four moves, but it takes no talent. If white moves first and goes to f4, black leaves his queen free with a move like ee just moving his pawn once. His queen is then free to go to h5. If black goes to g3, white goes to h5 and there's no way to block an attack on the king. If you beat someone with this strategy, they're not a worthy opponent. If you win with this strategy, you played yourself. But that works two ways. The most important thing is to realize that the problem is on the board, it's not with you. I ask people what piece they are on the chessboard. And some people say I'm the king or I'm the knight and then they ask me what piece I am, and I say, PM no piece. I take the position of God. Even if the king gets checkmated it doesn't stop me. It's the king that got checkmated, not me. You could call it a Zen approach to chess. And it also works in life. PM an American and I'm very patriotic when it comes to chess. PD rather imitate Bobby Fischer than imitate Garry Kasparov. Fischer's way of thinking was more aggressive. They found out years later by using computers to analyze his games that he should have lost some of the games he won, but he was determined not to lose. Every time they had him in a so-called losing position, his will and determination would make him win. It was something besides pure mathematical insight, statistics, probability, and strategy. There was some spark in Fisher, his obsession to win, that helped him triumph. I think most of my approach to life has been like that, to find order in chaos, to be in the middle of a bunch of things happening at the same time, but find focus. I strive to be like the sun sitting in the middle of the solar system with all the planets spinning around it millions of things going on. It's just sitting there being the sun, but exerting gravitational effect on everything. I think man should look at himself that way. Similarly to the sun or to the nucleus of an atom, and all the confusing things going on around him are okay as long as he's staying focused on what he's doing as long as he's being himself. Bobby Fischer lost when he became the pieces. When he'd lose he'd go to his room and cry, he really took things hard. He couldn't separate what happened on the hoard from what happened to himself. And some people think that it drove him crazy. I don't think he was crazy. Think he was eccentric. But I think he lost a crucial part OL perspective that you need in the game and in life. In the end, the best strategy, the best tactic you can hive in chess is the same one you should use in life, never jive up. Never let them count you out. That's how the J-Rets play, right down to the last move. That's one more Jezen why chess is like a sword fight. It's to the death. You should play it that way, like you should live your life, as a gym with mortal stakes. A game you play right down to the last move. Third pillar of wisdom chambers knowing others is wisdom.
Knowing yourself is enlightenment. Lauer's Ve been a story reader since I was three, a storyteller almost as long. When I was ten, I was friends with a Sudanese Muslim kid named Kazim, who knew a lot of the same Bible stories I did, since people like Job and Abraham are also mentioned in the Quran. The two of backslash s would post up in the hood, telling tales of the Prophet to other kids. That's what the Bible was to me back, hence stories until I found knowledge, and the truth to them became real. Nor years, it was the same way with Kung Fu flicks, from the first time one saw the five deadly venoms, in 1978, I was hooked hooked on the fighting, the period, the locales, and the stories. But the truth of those stories did have hit me for a few years. Then, one day in 1983, when I was almost 14, I was watching TV. The screen flashed a commercial for next week's movie, on June 6 the 36th Chamber of Shaolin. That was some prophetic numerology 6, 6, 36, and the movie had just that kind of impact on me. It was like something from the Old Testament or a Greek epic. It changed my life, for real, because its wisdom brought my own story alive. The Shaw brothers made the movie in 1978, but it's about a man in the 18th century who becomes a Shaolin monk. The man, Santee, starts out as a college student learning ethics. When he hears about the revolution against the Manchus, who are oppressing the native people, he joins the revolution and becomes a messenger. He gets wounded in a Manchu attack and seeks refuge from the monks of the Shaolin temple. At first, they reject him because he's an ignorant outsider, but then the abbot there sees something in him. He begins training him in martial arts. Santee starts out the film knowing nothing. By the end, he's a master. He completes all 35 chambers of Shaolin training faster than any other student finishing them in seven years. Then he wants to start a 36th chamber to teach the wisdom of Shaolin to the world. I was 14 years old when I saw that film. I had no edge of self, had mastered the 120 faster than anyone my age, and was teaching mathematics to others. When I saw the 36th chamber, felt like I was living it. The story is about oppression and transformation. The Manchus are oppressors, the students are the oppressed. But it takes the older monks to show them they're oppressed they thought things were always like that. As a mathematician, I could relate to that on a variety of levels the student's blindness, the teacher's wisdom, the reality of the oppression, and the strength it would take to overcome it. The second part of the movie is about the Kung Fu training Santee goes through, and that really inspired me started me doing push UPS, punching walls, going to Chinatown to buy Kung Fu books. But it also confirmed the path I was already on. It was like an echo of the lessons from another world, a reflection that made my situation clear. As we say, wisdom is a reflection of knowledge. And when I was a kid, the only knowledge the media showed about black history was about either slaves or pimps roots, the Mac, and that was basically it. So in a way, films like the 36th Chamber reflected our experience and solidified it, drew people like me into the truth of our own history. And after that, martial arts films became serious to me. I studied them like lessons. I still do. Even today, if you come to my house y'all see I got a lot of movies there, 
but about a thousand of them are kung fu movies. They run from Bruce Lee classics like The Chinese Connection, to a John Liu joint like Secret Rivals, to The Hot, The Cool and the Vicious, which is almost like a western, to martial arts of Shaolin, which is one of Jet Li's first films. Today, I watch them for inspiration to see the hardships Jet Li's character overcomes in Hero or Fearless, or the trials the family endures in Curse of the Golden Flower. I look for signals in my own life, to see how they activate those responses. These films still work that way for me, Kung Fu, Samurai, even anime films they still act like a mirror. Take even a cartoon like Dragon Ball Z One Mean, it's a cartoon, but it's one of the deepest cartoons in history. Its hero, Son Goku, starts out as a kid, begins martial arts training like Santee, and goes off on a quest for seven balls that unleash dragons that can grant wishes. Now, that's a fantasy, obviously, a children's story. But it's also based on a 16th century Chinese folk novel, about a Buddhist monk who travels to India to find the Buddhist sutras. That voyage represents a journey to enlightenment. But to me, Dragon Ball Z also represents the journey of the black man in America. You see it more clearly as the story goes on. You learn that Sun Goku is part of an ancient race called the Sians, who come from a distant planet and were known as the fiercest warriors in the galaxy. So Sun Goku has superpowers but doesn't realize it a head injury destroyed his memory, robbed his knowledge of self. Then one day, he gets stressed beyond his limits and hulks out into his alter ego, Super Sienaniga with dreadlocks. Get it? This kind of story comes up in world literature, even in the Bible, Abraham is told his seed will be lost for 400 years, in a land not their own, not knowing who they are or where they're from. That's the story of the Jewish people, but it's also the story of the black man in America. So I say we are the Sians, I even use the name Gaku as a tag when I write. And when my hair is in an afro. Word up, PM Super Sian. By the time I was 17, I was going to kung fu flicks all the time skipping school, staying out late, hitting the 24-hour movie spots on 42nd Street, where they showed only porno and kung fu. But then, in 1986, I saw another film that hit me almost as hard as 36th Chamber. And this one would change many more lives than just my own. It was a cold night, and Dirty and I were doing like we always did running around, getting drunk, starting fights, chasing girls. Then finally, around 4 a.m., we started looking for somewhere warm to crash out with our 40s. We wound up at this funky little porno theater on 42nd Street and 7th Avenue, one with a back chamber the size of a classroom, where they showed kung fu flicks and bums came to sleep. That's what we were about to do, but as we walked in cold, drunk, and tired I caught the tail end of a movie that woke me right the fuck up. It ended, another movie started, and I waited up all through that second feature to see the first one again from the beginning. It was called Shaolin and Wu-Tang, and I didn't sleep that night. At that point, I'd have to say this was the best kung fu movie I'd ever seen. The sword fighting alone was from another planet. Then there was the attitude of the Wu-Tang themselves. The Wu-Tang were defectors from the Shaolin Temple, warriors who had trained at Shaolin then developed a sword style that was invincible. 
in a lot of kung fu films like Fist of the White Lotus or even Kill Bill the Wu-Tang are actually the bad guys. And at one point in Shaolin and Wu-Tang, this one Wu-Tang dude defeats 30 Shaolin monks and gets expelled from the temple. Before he goes through, he says, I may be expelled, but I'm still the best. Wu-Tang. Even though he's kicked out of the temple, he's still the baddest motherfucker out there. That kind of attitude catches on fast in the hood, and pretty soon a lot of Stapleton niggas were onto the Wu-Tang. Then the word was popping up in slang. The first person to use it was Ghost. He'd say that Wu shit, meaning that fly shit. He called Old English Wu Juice. But since I was more attuned to the martial arts movies and history, I was able to elaborate. I decided that I didn't drink Wu Juice because I drank Ballantine Ale I drank Shaolin. Then I coined the term Wu-Tang slang, and everybody started speaking it just as a way to relate to one another. So before it was a rap group or even a hip-hop crew, Wu-Tang was just a bunch of hustlers living in the hood, guys who loved emsing and hip-hop and connected at my house to make music. A lot of us were in street busyness to survive, some of us were even enemies. But a love of both hip-hop and the world of knowledge brought us together, and before long we became a brotherhood. To me, that last part came into focus with one final kung fu film I showed them in 1989, a film that solidified the common love between us. That actually seen it years before, with my family. The movie is Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, and it tells a story of a large family that gets betrayed by a general, goes to war, and loses nearly every member to violence. There are eight brothers and three sisters in the film, and I have eight brothers and three sisters in my family. So, in my crib, we all used to watch that together saw it over and over and over. But a few years later, when I showed it to my friends, it took on a wider, deeper meaning. By 1989, everyone at the projects was into kung fu films, and a lot of us had VCRs. So one day, when a bunch of dudes came over to my crib to get high and watch flicks, I pulled out a tape of 8 diagram. Before we were an hour into it, something strange happened in that crib. People got real quiet, some niggas even started crying. Because that movie is real it's a reflection of the reality we were all living. A general betrays a family. A father gets killed. All his sons are killed except for two. One goes crazy. The other shaves his head, becomes a monk. You see this kind of thing happening in the hood every day. We were living in a place torn apart by wars neighborhood against neighborhood, dealer against dealer a place where you see people get killed or go crazy every week, a place where the bonds you make are almost stronger than blood. When someone has your back in a situation like that, it's a life or death thing a real brotherhood. I know that Ghostface, Dirty, and GZA all understood the deeper implication these movies had for our lives, and I know everyone in the clan does now. From 36th Chamber you get discipline and struggle. From Shaolin and Wu-Tang you get the warrior technique plus the idea bad guys are sometimes the eyelist. Then, from 8 Diagram Pole Fighter, you get the brotherhood, the soul. You get the idea that, this guy right here? He's stronger than me. Maybe he can take it a little further than I can. Let me throw my power behind him so we all rise up. In a way, 
the group we'd end up forming had to be called the Wu-Tang Clan. The name says that we're Wu-Tang warriors, we're from Shaolin, and we're a clan, which means family. That last part's just as crucial because it's about a connection to something bigger than yourself, which is where the greatest strength always comes from. That last bit of wisdom started to take hold of me later, when I began studying with Saifu Xianming, a 34th generation Shaolin monk who defected from China in 92 and came to open a Shaolin temple in New York. He was the abbot of his school, I was the abbot of mine he felt like a peer. But I also wanted to learn from him. Saifu can translate as master, and that's a tough word in the black community, but I realized that sometimes you have to submit to someone to learn. So I did. With Saifu I learned many Shaolin techniques, but my favorite is probably the five elements, maybe because I saw the five deadly venoms at a young age. This technique breaks nature down into five basic forces, earth, water, metal, wood, and fire which are also represented by the kung fu style snake, crane, dragon, leopard, and tiger. Most martial arts teach you to be as fluid as water, but earth absorbs water so you counter water techniques with earth techniques, which absorb blows. Then if someone comes at you with earth techniques, you counter with wood styles, which drive forward. Then you counter wood with metal styles, which chop like an axe, and metal with fire styles, which are more explosive, and, finally, you fight fire with water. These principles are both external and internal. Internally, it applies to your five major organs. Earth is the spleen, metal is the lungs, water is the kidneys, wood is the liver, fire is the heart. Like, I have asthma, so the form I learned to combat it with was metal to strengthen my the RZA60 lungs. At the same time, if you have a problem with your lungs, since fire melts metal you think of the energy from your heart pouring into your lungs. If your heart is ACHing emotionally, you think of the water from your kidney coming to quench your heart. You do all this mentally it's inner Taoism. Studying with Saifu, I learned that Kung Fu was less a fighting style and more about the cultivation of the spirit. What made a Shaolin monk so tough was his mastery of Qi the fact he could make contact with the earth and draw the energy from it through him. He's using his body, his breath, and his mind to align himself with the Tao which is pure energy, the energy that sprang from a PRI Mal stillness called Wu Chi Tai Chi translates as the grand extreme and breaks all ideas, forces, and objects into opposites, yin and yang. But Wu Chi, which translates as no extremes, came before Tai Chi it's infinite, the source of all power, and it's all one. A lot of people in our culture see life in terms of opposites like, good versus evil, me versus you, valuable versus worthless, black versus white. Taoists believe you have to see beyond these to find their essential union. When Wu-Tang Clan started out, we had the saying Tang is the slang, Wu is the way. I didn't know the Tai Chi meaning of it then, but it turns out I was on the money. In a way, Wu-Tang pointed me to a wisdom that unified mathematics and Taoism, that showed me their essential harmony. Islam is not a religion. It's a way of life in touch with the universe. It's the same as the Tao, which means the way it's the way of the universe. The only differences between Taoism and Islam are the more esoteric ideas and traditions that developed around them.
True Taoists don't talk about different gods. True Buddhists don't teach various deities. And the basic principle is really the same for Taoism, Buddhism, and mathematics to be one with the universe, one with God. They are all the way. I think we're all trying to get to one destination unifying with God. We're all striving to do that here on earth. So when Jesus says, through me you can find the kingdom of heaven, to me, that means he was in tune with God. If you follow his example, you'll find the king dom of God on earth. We all have natural things in us that prevent us and that help us. We all have evil nature in us lying, stealing, killing, and we fight against it. The Ten Commandments aren't commandments that you need to read. They're inside you. Islam, Desim, the teachings of the Bible they're all ways to get in touch with God's truth within you. And for a lot of people, this takes work. Look at it this way. In Kung Fu training, chambers are the stages of learning you must pass through. But as mathematicians, we conceive of each chamber as having 10 degrees like the 10 degrees in the lessons. So within each chamber, you go from 1, which represents knowledge, to 9, which represents born, like the 9 months it takes to bear a child. But then, when you go 61 the Tao of Wu passed born from 9 to 10 you're actually going back to 1, or knowledge, because 10 is 1 with a circle beside it. This kind of thing takes years of meditation to understand, but it's right there beneath the surface, represented in signs and numbers. An enlightened man sees that there actually are no numbers. It's all a circle. On a number line, the numbers left of zero head off to negative infinity and the ones right of zero head off to positive infinity. But it's infinity either way. The number line goes in both directions, endlessly, all within that one cycle or chamber. It's the same thing as yin and yang with a drop of yin there's always a speck of yang but they all go back to one. Today, some brothers get mad at me saying things like this. They say, why you fucking with Chinese dudes? How come you talk to Caucasian motherfuckers like their brothers? I know how they feel. And I bear witness that Allah is one, the father of the black man, who must take his proper place as God of himself. But over the years, I came to believe the basic lesson of Mathemat ICS is the same as that of Taoism, Buddhism, and every great spiritual path. It's that we all have the potential to become like God. Even Sun Gaku eventually learns how to develop Qi on his own, to become Super Sien at will. And today, I believe we've all got a Sien inside us, because God is in each of us. That's what we're all trying to reach, through all the chambers of our lives. If you reach the 36th chamber, you have completed your learning. You have multiplied one chamber by 36 and gotten 360 degrees a completed circle. If you add 3 to 6 you get 9 which represents born but then you must add one more to 9, and born becomes null edge again. And this puts you right back into the circle, back at 1. From knowledge to born, then born, back to knowledge it always returns to the beginning, to one dot and right there, that may be the most important lesson you can get. It's mathematics, baby, we're all one. But in this world, that kind of thing can take decades to see clearly. Not everyone has that much time, or those opportunities. An ancient Taoist named Ho Shang Kung once wrote, 
a dragon is still, thus it can constantly transform itself. A tiger is busy, thus it dies young. And in my life, the tigers would outnumber the dragons ten to one. Heart a street parable of courage when someone is known to be strong in the streets they say, that nigga got a lot of heart it doesn't mean he's the toughest dude out there. It just means he has the will and the courage to do something difficult, even if it's just surviving. If he got beat down, he came back up, he got a lot of heart. But another way of putting that is to say that his soul is large. This relates to the Heart Sutra, one of the shortest but most important sutras in all Buddhist writings. It's from the sutras known as the perfection of wisdom and it's only a paragraph long, but you might look at it like the eyeless rap verse ever spit simple, tight, and incomparably profound. Mostly the Heart Sutra is about being able to see real ITY as it truly is, unclouded by the things human beings project onto it. You read it differently in different translations, but to me, it's about knowing yourself. It's about trusting your heart real heart, not your ego to show you the truth. It's about that spark of God inside you. It's a lesson that I learned many years ago, when I was a kid in Staten Island. When I was 13, the toughest guy in my age bracket was a guy they called Jun Jun. Jun Jun matured early physically he was a man by the 8th grade and he was also a knockout artist, a bad dude no one wanted to fuck with. Unfortunately for me, one of the few dudes that did fight him was my older brother Divine, who beat him. So when I met Jun Jun a year later in junior high, we had an automatic beef a sense of the father's situation. Jun Jun wanted to try me. In 7th grade, I was one of those dudes who was always going to go for it. Win or lose, am going for it every time. So we had a fight, and I have to say he beat me. Pewdie this way, when you gotta bite a nigga to get up. That means you lost. I wound up moving to Bro Oakland for a year or two and then moved back to Staten Island for high school. And in my first week back in the school, who do I run into? June June. He was even still with his same little homeboy he'd been hanging with two years ago a little instigating motherfucker. This little dude said to June June, remember him? Remember him? He's that nigga that bit you that one time. So June June came up to me and was like, what up, boy? By this time, was 14 and had knowledge of myself. And if a man truly knows himself, he also knows his enemy. He knows that even if his enemy is a giant, that giant still has the same weaknesses within him. I think that's why the yin and yang has two dots, one on each side. The dot in your opposite in this case the bully is his weak spot. The more knowledge of self you have, the better chance you have of finding that little dot within him. Because that dot is the you in him. It's like Jesus says in the Bible, how is it that you can see the mote in your brother's eye and not see the beam in your own? The giant is bullying you for no reason other than that he sees something in you that he sees in himself. On some level, I perceived that within infinite. So when he challenged me, I came back at him, saying, I ain't no boy, man. His calling me that meant we had to fight. Again. This time it happened in McKee Park on Staten is land, between the two high schools, McKee and Curtis. In a way, they're Wu-Tang feeder schools. You God went to McKee, I went to Curtis. 
Jun Jun and I walked four blocks to go fight in McKee Park, with a crowd following us. This time we must have fought for an hour. Nobody wins a fight like that. Even though we were only in ninth grade, this was a real fight between two men. There were blood, cuts, the kinds of wounds that don't heal. It ended with him having two rocks in his hands not a fair fight, if it ever was and me still not backing down. The fight was over when neither of us could move. In this case, you would say that we both had heart. I had heart for defending my honor, because in the streets that's all you have. I couldn't beat this guy he was probably lifting 200 pounds by this time but he could not beat me without killing me. I showed heart. And in this case, I showed enough heart that Jun Jun wound up becoming my student. Soon after this, he found mathematics, took the name infinite, and began to study with me. I like to think that my heart wanted his respect so I could teach him. That's the good side of heart. But there's a dark side to heart, and that's ego. That part of heart ended up defeating infinite. In a year or two, infinite became known throughout Staten Island as a tough dude and an egomaniac. A lot of guys that hung with me from Park Hill and Stapleton didn't like him. Infinite was from New Brighton, and a lot of neighborhood wars were started by him and his brother. Mathematics had calmed him down a bit, but he was still knocking niggas out left and right. You had to say that Infinite had too much of the wrong kind of heart. It got to the point that he was confronted with a life and death situation, and ego destroyed him just like it can destroy all of us. In the Kung Fu movie The Five Deadly Venoms, there's a character named Golden Arms, who was also called the Toad, the fifth deadly venom. His style was simply to be invincible. No type of attack, not even blades or spears, could defeat him. You see a lot of Golden Arms kids in the hood the place brings it out of you and that's definitely how Jun Jun thought of himself. He was like Golden Arms, I don't need a weapon. Infinite beat many men like that. But eventually he was defeated by a lesser man. That's because he'd already defeated himself. This was a man with one of the biggest hearts in all of Staten Island, but one day he challenged this young nigga with the heart of a coward. He dared this kid to shoot him, and he did. Infinite died. Even the kid who killed him was like, yo, I didn't want to kill him. He made me. I believe that. I believe it was Infinite's heart that killed him. They say there's a dark spot in your heart, a tiny black vacuum, that's the size of the tip of a needle. I believe that tiny space is where God is located inside you. That tiny dark spot is a piece of space trapped in our body, something that connects us to the universe and one another. Physics says that nature abhors a vacuum. Whether it's true wisdom or ego, something is going to fill that vacuum in your heart. You'll find out what it is as you go through life. If you're a young man and have a lot of heart, that means you have courage. But then you learn the other meaning of heart, which is love. At first, love is a vacuum that takes courage from your heart. You're scared around a woman you love. You're not the same tough dude, the same thug. At first, love weakens you. But soon it makes you strong in ways you couldn't imagine. Love is the first two steps, knowledge and wisdom, coming together. It's one and two put them together you get twelve, and the twelfth letter in the alphabet is L, 
which stands for love. If wisdom is like water, so is love. It dissolves you then rebuilds you stronger. It's like when you have your first child you've never felt weaker in your life. Your love for that child makes you vulnerable. But it also makes you stronger, because you'll do anything to protect that child. So love, like wisdom, dissolves you and then resolves you. It breaks down your ego and puts you back together again properly. When love doesn't find its way into your heart, you die. That's what happened with infinite. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My website is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. My Instagram is alphamalebuddhist. And check out my YouTube channel, Alpha Male Buddhist, and that's on YouTube. It is the podcast accompanied with video clips that integrate exactly with the podcast so it's motivational and inspirational i also have promotional t-shirts if you go to my website alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com you can see the promotional t-shirts there reach out to me also if you have any show notes or any suggestions that you would like to hear on the podcast just reach out and see if i can get that done i've been getting some really Great emails and feedback from my listeners, which is great. So I want to thank you for listening and namaste.